Well, we're at the end. If you've been following along with us, we've been journeying through the story of Ruth, and today we come to the grand conclusion. So if you've got your Bible with you, um, open it up to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. It's perfect, her children's sermon, because throughout this book of Ruth, we've been seeing God's covenant faithful love for his people, for individual people. We've been seeing his type of people show that kind of covenant love to each other as an example for us as Christians. So that fits really well today as we get ready to close out this story. A handful of years ago, Brooke decided to spend a little bit of effort and time and money on this uh, one of these genealogy things. Have you anyone done that to learn about your ancestry? She wanted to give my dad something special for a birthday, I think, if that's the reason she began that process. And it's pretty neat. You can learn a lot about your name, about your family. You know, we have pictures of, of people from generations past. There's pictures of tombstones where you learn a lot about people from their tombstones sometimes. There were pictures of... Uh, you know, uh, draft cards for the World War I. Uh, I've seen uh, death, death certificates, uh, a list of occupations, things like that. It was pretty neat because my dad, who's a pastor, uh, there happened to be this line of pastors as you went back through the generations and his family. So that was pretty neat because not only were there pastors, but then he was a pastor. And then, of course, I'm a pastor. My brother's a pastor. So that was really neat. There's, a family name is important. Would you, would you agree with that? You know, this legacy, this idea of passing something down. You know, we've used the word legacy since day one here at this church, that, that we would be passing down this legacy of faith to the next generation. That's vital. You know, I told Braxton very early on, you know, no one else in our family history is named Braxton. It's a cool name, but the name that's really important is Williams, because that's, that's my name. You know, that's Papa's name. That's Granddad Clyde's name. I said, whenever you do something and people find out that your last name is Williams, it reflects on all of us above you, either good or bad. And so the last name is important. And that's kind of where we're at here with, with our story with Elimelech. You know, there's no one to carry on his name. There's no son. There was no grandson. His, his widow, Naomi, she's too old to remarry and have a kid. So the only hope is this foreigner, this Moabite, Ruth, his dead son's widow. And like all good stories, there's, there's filled with suspense. That's where we're at here. We found out last week that Ruth is going to get married. She's going to get married, but we don't know who she's going to marry. Is she going to marry Boaz or this, this strange guy that we don't even know his name? But he's the closer redeemer, you know. So we ended last week. Boaz said, hey, I'll take care of it in this morning, but we don't know. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of rooting for Boaz. Don't you feel yourself like over the last few weeks we've been watching kind of like a sitcom or something, and, you know, they've had these moments in the field and on the threshing room floor and, um, and all these things, and you're like, well, I hope she marries Boaz. I mean, if, you know, if Ruth and Boaz don't end up together, that'd be like Ross and Rachel not ending up together, you know, after all those years. And so, so as we, we turn to chapter 4, we're, we're hoping, you know, that that's what happens. But as we see... Um, the choice of a husband is not the only thing that will be resolved in this chapter. In fact, our narrator's got one more plot twist to throw on us at the very end of the book. You see, this story, the story of Ruth isn't only about God meeting the needs of Ruth and Naomi, but in the process, he's also making a way to meet the needs of, of, of Israel, the people of Israel, and their future king. 
So the story is about God's faithful, hested love toward Ruth and Naomi, yes, but it's also about his faithful, hested love toward Israel, his people that he chose. The people of Israel, they haven't even thought about asking for a king yet. Remember, this is still in the days of the judges. But in God's great sovereignty, he was already preparing a way for the one that would meet that need. So let's dive in, chapter 4, and see what God has to say to us, a short prayer uh, before we do, Father, as we open your word, let it be truth to us. Teach us um, what we need to know. Help us to understand it properly so that you can work in our lives through it and mold us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Amen. Chapter, one, chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, that's like right when he sat down. Behold, as luck would have it, <laughs> the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took the ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here too. So they sat down. So again, we see God's providential hand at work. It's like just as Boaz sat down, the guy happened to walk by the gate. Okay, good timing. Okay, down the gate, the town gate was the place where meetings were held, place where uh, business transactions occurred, okay? So that's why he went to that place. And here, Boaz encounters this closer relative, this strange man, for some reason, we don't even know his name. In fact, the narrator kind of works really hard to make sure we don't know his name, okay? Now, the phrase he says, come over here, friend, it actually, he says, come over here, peloni almoni. It's, it's a phrase that rhymes, but it's kind of like nonsense. It's meaningless. It's kind of like our way of saying Mr. So-and-so. It doesn't really mean anything. So he's like, hey, Mr. So-and-so, come here. Mr. No-name. And then he also gets ten elders that happen to be there at the gate. That's where the elders would hang out. And he said, hey, I need you to guys sit down too. He knew he needed them as witnesses for the transaction he hoped was going to happen. Does that make sense? So everybody understand where we're at? Whoa. Okay. So... He gets right to the point. Boaz doesn't waste any time. Look at, look at verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So basically, Boaz tells this guy, hey, you know uh, Naomi, you know our relative, she needs to sell Elimelech's land so she'll have some money to live on. However, if there was a kinsman redeemer, he could buy the land and keep it for himself um, and his own inheritance, and given there's no children... And, and, and then keep it in the family, okay? You're first in line. Do you want to do that? That's what he says. And Mr. No Name is like, well, yeah. You know, I mean, they say buy land. They're not making it anymore. And this seems like a, a really good deal to turn down. So Mr. So-and-so agreed. And we all go, no, because we know what? Well, that means this guy, Mr. No Name, is going to marry Ruth now. Now, he doesn't know that part. Um, so Boaz tacks it on. Look at verse 5. Oh, then Boaz said, uh, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Well, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. 
Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz, he just tacks this part on at the end. He's like, oh, and, uh, whoever gets the land also gets Ruth the Moabite. And Mr. So-and-so, he backs down really fast. Never mind, you can have it. He says he wants to protect his own inheritance. You see, if Ruth gets pregnant by this new husband and has a boy, the field actually will then belong to that son. Okay, so, so he, he may, Mr. No-Name, he may have children of his own. He doesn't get to add this necessarily to his inheritance. If, it, if he marries Ruth and has a kid, that kid gets it because it's in the name of Elimelech. And, and Mr. No-Name says that doesn't sound like as good of a deal. So he wouldn't actually be adding anything to his own inheritance. He'd be paying for the field. He'd be paying to take care of Naomi and Ruth the rest of his life. And, and the cost probably wouldn't be worth that, Okay. So you see, he was only interested in taking care of Naomi when he thought that he was going to get something in return of greater value. Having to also take Ruth as his wife, care for her, and have to give the land to her possible future children, he, he didn't want any part of that. Um, Ian Dugwood says that the irony is that by seeking to protect his future legacy in this way, Mr. So-and-so ended up leaving himself nameless missing out on having a share in the biggest legacy of all, a place in God's plan for salvation. Hmm. Boaz, however, he was willing to take the risk, even if the financial payoff wasn't worth the cost. Boaz just keeps surprising us with this character of his, doesn't he? Look at verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times. Uh, the narrator has to explain this, because apparently wherever we are in history... They had quit doing this exercise, and so he's explaining it to him. Back then, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one would take off his sandal and give it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malan. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz was willing to jump in there immediately. As soon as Mr. So-and-so said, no, I don't want any part of it, Boaz said, give me the sandal, and I want in. I don't understand that, but the guy took off his sandal and gave it to him. I don't know if later Boaz was allowed to give it back or if he had to walk around with one sandal. I don't. There's a place in the Bible that it kind of explains this and also includes a woman spitting in his face. Um, there was no woman here at this point, so, but apparently they would take off a sandal and give it. Okay, it's kind of like paying earnest money. You know, when you buy and buy a property, you got to say, hey, I'm serious. Here's a thousand bucks to show you that I'll give you more, you know, later on. But whatever. Okay, so Ruth 4 here then. Did you hear how many times I said the word name? I titled this sermon, What's in a Name? Because Ruth 4 is all about preserving names. Whether it's about preserving the names of Elimelech and Malan or the blessing that these guys, these elders, give to Boaz about making his name famous and remembered in Bethlehem, or the similar blessing that we'll see in a minute at the birth of Obed, or to the list of names at the very end of this chapter, the, 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 the thread to keep one's name alive is woven throughout chapter 4. 
So Boaz and Mr. So-and-so, they didn't even recognize it at the time, but what was at stake here was a lasting name. It wasn't just uh, marrying a woman and getting a piece of field. See, whoever married Ruth didn't just get a strong woman of character. He would also receive a place in God's plan, we're going to find out. The son born to Ruth through his line would, would become Bethlehem's most famous son, David, the king after God's own heart. And by trying to protect his legacy, Mr. So-and-so, he remained nameless forever. As I read through this, I ask myself, how often do I ask the question, what's in it for me? What will it cost me? Will this fulfill me? And by asking those kinds of questions, what I do is I completely leave God out of the equation. Sometimes we follow God's will, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to have the most earthly rewards for us. In the book of Ruth, we learn that sometimes fullness comes through emptiness. Mr. No Name, he held on as tight as he could to what he had, and he ended up losing something of much greater value. Early on in our story, we find out Naomi, she lost everything she had. But even in the hardest things were part of God's plan. It took losing everything she had for her to see what she had gained in Ruth and to find her place in God's plan. Listen to this. Sometimes suffering is necessary for our spiritual growth. Can I say that again? Sometimes suffering, hard times, is necessary for our spiritual growth. Boaz, he does the opposite of Mr. So-and-so. He took the risk, proudly even. Look what he said. He said, I'm going to marry Ruth who? The Moabite. He didn't just say, I'm going to marry Ruth. He said, Ruth the Moabite, the foreigner, the one with the bad reputation. He wasn't worried about his reputation or making a name for himself. With his announcement, he made it clear what he was doing was to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. He wanted to do this because he wanted the name of Elimelech to carry on into the future. He says, I want to do this to make sure that his name is not cut off from among his brothers. Boaz was not doing this in self-interest. He was doing it out of self-sacrifice. He was trusting God to take care of his name rather than try to preserve it himself. Putting our name and our reputation and our future in God's hands is a way safer place than keeping them in our own. If you've ever tried to do that yourself, you've probably found that out. And even though Boaz wasn't concerned with the praise of man, that's exactly what he got. In verses 11 through 12, we see that Boaz has the respect and the blessing of these ten elders. So even though he wasn't really seeking that, God gave him an earthly reward anyways. They say, we want your name, we, we, we bless you. We want your name to be famous in Bethlehem forever. Of course, here we are thousands of years later still talking about Boaz. Blessing came true. <laughs> and so finally, we get to have the wedding we've been waiting for. It's going to end with a good ending, okay? Good ending. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the office wedding, okay? You remember that one? great episode. Okay, so here we are finally. Verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Ten years she was married to Malan and did not have children. Married Boaz and right away God 
gave her conception. What does it say? The Lord gave her conception. A son to carry on the legacy of Elimelech was born. Do you think God had anything to do with that? He, he, he kept the womb closed for 10 years, and then he opened it when, it was his, when he was ready. Once again, in our story, we see the invisible, providential hand of God at work to accomplish his will in his timing. Do you see that? That's how God works. He works to accomplish his will, not ours, and he does it in his timing, not ours. Have you ever wondered if God's even up there doing anything at all? Like if he's gone on vacation, taking a break, and you say, I've been praying for this thing for like 10 whole days, God. God's like, I'm eternal. You've been praying for that for like 10 days. I'm eternal. I'm going to accomplish my will in my time. And he always will do it. He will always do it. God's will never doesn't happen. I know that's a double negative, but I can't think of a better way to say it. God's will never doesn't happen. His will always happens in his timing, period. You don't do something and make God go, you know what, you're right. I didn't think of that. <laughs> Let's do it your way. It, it never happens that way. Although we act like it should, which is just crazy to me. Verse 14. <laughs> Then the women said to Naomi, see, now we turn back and, and our focus is turned back to Naomi, Elimelech's widow, the one who was empty, the one who came back empty, the one who God had been so uh, hard on her that she changed her name to the word bitter. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. They're wishing the blessing on this child the same way that the elders did on Boaz. They, it's, it's all about this name. This name is very important. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. See, the son wasn't only for Boaz. This son was for Naomi. To comfort and to care for her in her old age... A kinsman redeemer? A clear sign that her emptiness had been completely replaced with fullness by the grace of God. Amen? No one could bring back Naomi's husband or her sons, but now she had Ruth and the other women. They recognized Ruth as being more valuable than seven sons. What a statement. Do you understand that statement from a male-dominated society that these women would say, hey, your daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabite, she's more valuable than seven sons. That's a huge deal. And she had a child to carry on the family name. Mm. And what a name it would become. Look at verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Now check this out. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This son that was born to Ruth to carry on this family name ends up being the grandfather of Israel's most famous king, King David. That's awesome. Have you ever used Google Maps to, to look at your house? You ever done that with the satellite view? And zoom way in so you can see and see if your car is in the driveway and things like that? You should do it if you haven't. I like to do that. I like to do it with the house I grew up in. It's 1601 Bell Tower Court in Louisville, Texas. Has anyone ever Googled that? 
I would Google that and zoom way in. I wanted to make a video of me doing this, but I just thought about that five minutes ago, and it was, and I, I thought, well, I can't do that now. Anyways, if you can imagine zooming in on 1601 Bell Tower Court, and that's my home. We moved there when I was seven. You can see the swimming pool. You can see the basketball court. You can see the side yard where we played a lot of football, the cul-de-sac where we rode our bicycles. I mean, we moved there when I was seven. My parents sold it about six years ago when they finally moved down to the Houston area. So that's my home. You know, that's my home. Even when we go to, to Louisville or Dallas area today, we drive by and we go, kids, that's my home. That's where I grew up. You ever do that if you go back to your home? Sure, it's our home. But if you zoom out one notch, uh, you can see Clint. You remember Clint in Poland? He grew up the street behind me. You can see Clint's house. And if you hit two notches out, you can see DeGan Elementary, where I went to school. And then by that time, you can kind of see most of my neighborhood and all the streets where I would drive around the bicycle and get in fights and play with people and stuff like that. And if you go out one more time, you pretty much see the whole city of Louisville and, and Louisville High School, the greatest high school there ever was. And, and you can even see the place where Brooke went to school. And, and if you head out again, you go, oh, oh, well, we're in Dallas. That's kind of a big deal. I mean, it's, not, it's a lot bigger deal than Louisville, Texas. You never even heard of Louisville, Texas, but you heard of Dallas, right? Cowboys, J.R. Ewing, okay? And, and then if you, yeah, see? And if you zoom out again, you go, oh, well, 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 we're in the great state of Texas is what we're looking at. And then you zoom out again, oh, well, we're in the United States of America. And, and look, this isn't even the only country in this big old piece of land that we call North America. And by the time you zoom out, you go, and Louisville is really small compared to this world. And in my heart, I thought Louisville was everything. It was my heart, my home, and, and I thought that was a big... The, the story of Ruth is kind of like that. See, we've been zoomed in. We've been zoomed in on, on Naomi and Ruth and this little, this little family here and, and hoping that God would show his love and take care of their needs and meet their needs because they had such a hard time. And, ooh, I wonder if... You know, if Ruth and Boaz are going to get married, we've been zoomed way in. And here at the end of chapter 4, it's like we go, Whoosh. like, oh, oh. That, that's actually just a really small story in this big story of what God is trying to accomplish. And all that's been going on in this story, God's been working toward accomplishing bigger plans than just hooking up Ruth and Boaz, it looked like this story is about God meeting the personal needs of a couple of people, but it was actually his way of meeting a much greater need. See, he's at work doing something way bigger than just you and your little house, okay? See, we, you, we like to think the world revolves around us and that the most important thing happening right now in this moment is exactly what we're doing in this room in the whole world. But if we would just zoom out a little bit, we would quickly see, oh, we're, we're just very small, very small piece. See, in the very first verse of our story, we find that this was uh, the time of the judges. And then by the time we get to the very end, we see this in these last few verses, this genealogy of Israel's most famous king, King David. That's amazing. And today, it happens to be December 1. We begin to celebrate Christmas, look at lights, sing Christmas songs, watch Christmas movies and all those things. And next week, we're going to begin a new sermon series as we begin to look forward with anticipation leading up to Christmas Day when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so next week, we're going to probably look at Matthew chapter 1. And so we end today with this genealogy of King David. And next week, we start with the genealogy of King Jesus. Guess who's in that genealogy? Ruth. 
This genealogy of King Jesus, chock full of sinners like David, chock full of foreigners like Ruth. Later in, in, in the chapter of Matthew explains this sinful foreign ancestry of Jesus. The angel tells jo Joseph to name his child what? Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus later on as an adult said he came to seek and save the lost. The reason there's a bunch of lost people in his ancestry is because he came to save and rescue sinners just like his own ancestors, just like you, just like me. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, came to earth and mingled with the worst of the worst sinners in order to save them. Jesus' love is far greater than Ruth's love for Naomi. Ruth was willing to leave Moab, but Jesus left heaven. His love is far greater than Boaz's. Boaz was, was willing to risk his reputation. Jesus allowed himself to be of no reputation, despised and rejected by people, crucified on a cross by the very people he loved. But because of it, check this out, God gave him a name that is above every name. Isn't that awesome? You see the connection? What's in a name? Man, even the name of Boaz, that the guy said, hey, may your name be famous in Bethlehem forever. And even though Boaz's name is in the genealogy of Jesus, his name pales in comparison next to the Son of God, Jesus. Mm, the question today is, do you know this love of Jesus? If you do, man, you know you're celebrating right now. You love December. Because Jesus has shown you that love and you can't wait to celebrate the fact that he would leave his home in heaven, leave his father and come to earth as a child, as a baby, as a human who needs to eat and use the bathroom and cut his nails just so he could rescue you from your sin. If you know his love, then you should praise God for his grace. But if you don't, you're in a more hopeless place than Naomi was. Do you know that? You see, your efforts will never be enough. God's standards will never be bent just enough because you think you, you, you're better than most. It's true that some of our sins are big and some of them seem small, but the truth is this. Each and every one of them would be enough to condemn us for eternity. Do you know that? The first one. The first one is enough. Trusting in Jesus is our only hope. And if you haven't done that yet, or if you don't know how to do that, okay, I'm not going to just assume that you know what that even means. And here in a minute, we're going to pray, and when I say amen, everyone's going to stand up and they're going to walk out. Music's going to play. Instead of walking out, my prayer for you, if you don't know Jesus' love, is that you would run up here to the front. Find Sid, find me, find an overseer, find someone that just looks happy, that looks like they might know the love of Jesus, and say, I want to know Jesus can you tell me how to do that? Because until you make that decision, you are more hopeless than a widow who has a Moabite daughter-in-law and no food to eat. It may not seem that way because you live in America and you have a good-paying job and a nice family, but that's where you're at. And that's the trick of Satan, is he likes to cover up our hopelessness to make us think that we're actually full when in fact we are as empty as Naomi was. What a great story, and what a great way to lead us into this season of Advent, this season of anticipation. We're going to pray, 
And man, I pray that this story would change us for good. That we would be, as Christians, people who would risk even if it doesn't make sense because of the plan of God. People that would do things for other people out of covenant faithful love even if we aren't repaid for it. That we would trust in God and His plan for our life rather than trying to hold on to our own inheritance and the things that we think we've earned. Amen. Father, you alone are God. You are the almighty creator of the world, giver of your son, Jesus, in order that we could be called sons and daughters, family of God. We thank you for your plan that is so much greater than anything we could ever come up with. Remind us that you truly do have the whole world in your hands and you are active working in the lives of humans, even behind the scenes, to make sure your will is accomplished in your time. We thank you for allowing us to be a part. Father, at this time of year, as we begin to anticipate the coming of Jesus and celebrate his birth, that the one miracle that changed the world forever... Father, would you help us to show that love if we know it with others around us? With as many lights will be illuminated this month, we know that most of the people around us are walking around in darkness. And we have the answer. Give us opportunities to share. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the price you paid on the cross. Spirit, we thank you fulfilling us and helping us to live and helping us to grow more like you. We're excited. Excited for what you're going to do in and around us. Thank you for letting us be a part. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.